Welcome to The Bridgehead with Jonathan Van Maren, bringing you cutting-edge news, commentary, and interviews from the front lines of the culture wars. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead on AM 1380. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and I'll be your host for the next half hour. So in uh, keeping with, uh, with my tradition of trying to interview the authors of, of new books that I think are, are worthy of notice, uh, we have a quite an interesting interview, and one I was very pleased to get today, with uh, author Conrad Black about his new book on Canada. Now, many of you will recognize the name of Conrad Black, of course, because he owned many, many different newspapers, including the National Post here in Canada, uh, the Jerusalem Post in Israel, the Chicago Sun-Times in the U.S., uh, and even the Daily Telegraph in the United Kingdom before he ran into uh, some much-talked-about legal troubles, which I'll uh, leave to one side here. Now, he's been back in Canada uh, for several years, and he's been doing quite a bit of writing in the National Post. And uh, I've always very much enjoyed his writing because he he really comments not from a, a specifically conservative point of view, but uh, very interestingly he often comes at things uh, in a way that no one will expect, which is, is more than you can say for most of today's commentators due to the fact that, you know, most commentators, you, you often know what they're going to say before they even say it. You read the title of the column, and you're immediately aware of, of what's going on. But not so with Conrad Black, and he's written a number of, of very surprising columns, uh, especially uh, recently. Uh, my favorite column, though, that he wrote recently that I, I found was extremely hilarious uh, was a column he wrote simply uh, called A Word of Reply to My Critics. He wrote that uh, about uh, a year and a half back uh, when his book first came out, uh, Rise to Greatness, The History of Canada from the Vikings to the Present. And I wanted to do a, a, an interview on this book for quite some time because I think it's an extremely fascinating book. And he uh, responded to a, a lot of uh, left-wing critics who really didn't like this book. Now, I mentioned in the interview that, uh, that I had read uh, some people uh, disagreeing with his statement that Canada was, in fact, a great country and, and thought it was rather a braggy claim. Uh, Black hadn't heard that, uh, but, I, but I did read that in, in some reviews. And additionally speaking, uh, a lot of people, of course, hammered him on all the traditional fronts, of course, uh, any book on Canada these days is heavily scrutinized by those who feel that Aboriginals uh, should, of course, be front and center in these types of books, and more or less want these books to, to serve as long, extended apologies to all of those that uh, Canadians of Anglo-Saxon descent have wronged in some fashion. Now, I'll actually uh, read a little bit of his response to his critics, just because the writing is is quite exquisite. He said, uh, quote, those who have been troubled by mice or squirrels in the walls, basements, or attics of their homes would be familiar with the noise of busy little rodents that I now hear from English Canada's small but strivingly hyperactive literary critical commune. In my last communication with the Literary Review of Canada, I wondered if there was a slightly run-down apartment block in an out-of-the-way part of Toronto or even Ottawa where unaccomplished people, heavy laden with bilious opinions, fester unhappily and come snorting and gibbering out of the undergrowth to snap at contrary-minded writers for a small fee. It is, te- it is a tediously familiar process, though not one without its humorous aspects. Now, of course, he goes on then to to rebut specific accusations about his book on Canada, one of the main ones being 
uh, his his characterization of Aboriginal culture. And it's kind of interesting that people would disagree with this because I got into this debate uh, quite frequently in university as well, where I pointed out that uh, cultures that were more or less rendered obsolete by the rise of technology uh, were not necessarily uh, driven out with any sort of uh, intention, but rather this is is simply the way uh, that history often unfolds. But he got hammered, of course, by by the usual suspects on this front. But I'll uh, I ask him about this in the interview, so I'll leave that one uh, to him. So very uh, pleased to have a uh, Conrad Black, who's I, I must say one of my favorite authors on this show. And uh, I, I apologize for the way my voice sounds because when I recorded this uh, just over a week ago, uh, I was very sick. I had, I had a, quite a brutal head cold, and my head felt like it was full of concrete. So that's the reason for my voice sounding so much different in this particular interview. But uh, with that said, I hope you enjoy this conversation with uh, author and columnist Conrad Black on his uh, History of Canada. First of all, for a nation that has often been considered at its very peak of middle power, uh, referring to Canada as great is, is often quite the claim, and one you would think would appeal to uh, the sort of Canadian sense of, of pride that often people have. However, a lot of people have uh, disputed this case. How do you make the case? Well, I'm not aware that a lot of people have disputed it. And in the first place, the title means in the sense of rise towards, to meaning not that it is necessarily a journey that is completed, but it is clearly underway and well advanced. That's how I meant it. But, you know, if I would expressed it that way, it would have been the longest title in history of a book that sold any copies. Um, but I'm not aware that it is much disputed. But to answer the question of how I explain it, you have to see the you have to see the full canvas. It started in the sense of Canada that we know, that is to say one uh, uh, whose history was largely or predominantly made by Europeans or people descended from Europeans, with Champlain and a handful of people a little over 400 years ago. And it had a precarious colonial history and was passed back and forth between different powers and was strung together again precariously at the end of the U.S. Civil Wars, a bunch of bits and pieces along the U.S. border that did not happen at that moment to be American, though they could have become so at any moment by, by a military fiat of what was the greatest army in the world at the mm-hmm. time, and the greatest generals in the world. And it did so on the basis of a bicultural example that had never really worked on a large and, and federal scale before, and and yet it is now a G7 country, and by any reasonable measurement, one of the 10 or 12 most important countries in a world that has 199 countries in it, counting the Vatican, Palestine, and Taiwan. And therefore, I see it as nothing other than a rise to greatness in the sense toward greatness, and, and, and with extensive progress toward it, and and I, I don't think there would be much difficulty justifying the title. And by the way, I think most Canadians should start thinking of themselves that way. I mean, I'm, don't, I imagine I'm older than you are, but I was born just at the very end of the Second World War, but I was brought up to believe just what you said. It was a middle power, and basically what we could aspire to do was tug at the trouser leg of the Americans or the British or the French. And 
and, and there was nothing wrong with that. When that was all we could do, we did it, and we did it well. But and, and I'm certainly not suggesting we cease to be friendly with those countries. Quite the reverse. But we can do more than that now. You were substantially uh, kinder to, uh, to Trudeau the Younger in this election than you were to Trudeau the Elder in the book, uh, because of a lot of the policies that he laid out that you considered to be uh, quite damaging to Canada's standing. What would your critique be of, of Pierre Trudeau's effect on, on Canada as it stands today? Well, I, I, I think I was quite clear that I regarded him as one of the country's great friends, mm -hmm. along with Donald Laurier and King, but he he has an unusually unbalanced record in that he entered public life, and I knew him somewhat, so I, this is certainly what he said. He entered public life for the sole purpose of promoting federalism and opposing separatism in Quebec, and there's not the slightest doubt that it was for that reason that he was elevated to the leadership of the Liberal Party and, and, and won several times as Prime Minister of Canada. And he did succeed in that. He uh, he did patriate the Constitution, and he did shift a good deal of the debate from the merits of distribution of jurisdiction as between different levels of government to emphasize the emphasis of the rights of in individuals in the country and throughout the country. And um, he won the referendum in 1980 quite clearly, 60-40, against even an attempt to renegotiate terms of confederation subject to a subsequent referendum. He managed to persuade 60% of Quebecers even to reject that. And uh, and so I, I rate him as successful in that regard. And I also give him some slack in some of the areas he was not so successful. Uh, he, he did engage in a great deal of fiscal profligacy, pouring money around on transfer payments, but that was all part of his campaign for federalism and against separatism. He's buying votes, really, but calling it something else. And, I mean, not for himself and not for his party, although there's perhaps an aspect of that, but for the idea of Canada in Quebec. And he did spend a lot of money around Ottawa, turning it into a much better-looking city than it was, and a city that looked much more than it had before, mm -hmm. like capital of a serious country. So on balance, I, I think I was rather positive to him and did say he was a great prime minister. But, but the fact is, his foreign policy was essentially nonsense. And it was, a, again, partly directed at the Quebec nationalists to show them that Canada was not just a puppet of the Americans and the British. But uh, I thought he had a lot of fairly wingy ideas about uh, his friendship with Castro, and the, I, I mean, I almost thought he related more closely to the Russians and the Americans. And for all his championship of civil liberties in Canada, he was no great friend of it abroad, such as with the uh, dissidents in Russia and that sort of thing. But, but on balance, he was a great prime minister. With his son, of course, I, I, I you know, I wish him well, as I think we all do. And mm -hmm. I think he's not off to a bad start at all. But we just don't know, and we'll have to see how it goes and hope for the best. 
Uh, plenty of reviewers ignored the bulk of of your book just to focus on uh, the very typical things that reviewers do focus on, for example, examination of indigenous cultures, and you responded in the National Post with quite a comprehensive rebuttal. Why do you think uh, things like your examination of, of indigenous culture proved so controversial with so many of the typical reviewers? Well, I, I don't want to... Uh, you know, I don't want to get into mind reading here. You know, I, I don't, I didn't know uh, the, the reviewers that I mentioned you're, you're referring to, Jonathan, are not people that I actually knew other than one or two of them. And, um, and even one of them, Mr. Scowan, I, I didn't know him, I knew his father. But the, uh, uh, look, I had the sense, and I've had the sense for a long time, that what we might call the professional reviewers in this country are completely unrepresentative and esoteric group and they they are uh, 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 they, they fall afoul of the old rule of people are to be judged by their peers and the Canadian rule frequently is to drag out a reviewer you know to be hostile to the author right they think it's entertaining and amusing to do that and so we in our strategy for this book essentially ignored the reviewers. I didn't speak to the Toronto Star at all. I did, I did speak to the Globe and Mail. And, uh, and, uh, uh, but we ran a big media blitz and a big book tour three times out across the country. And, and we sold out 40,000 books at $50 each. Even the, even the volume price was $35 for, you know, for Indigo and Costco and so on. So it, it was a huge success in sale terms. Now, I don't do these things for money, but it's been a big success as a selling book at a, at a relatively high price. And and, I, and we did it simply by ignoring the reviewers. But they, they, they to finish my answer to your question, while I'm reluctant to, uh, to mind read and have no standing to mind read these people because I don't know them personally, they are a nasty little group as a group, and they, they, they don't write books themselves, and not that anyone would read, and so they criticize the books of people who write books that others do read. And they were, in effect, unable to attack my message because it was an unambiguously pro-Canadian message. So the best they could do was nibble around the edges and... Uh, uh, take the odd gratuitous shot at me in the only area where they thought they saw any kind of open space to uh, to land a blow was on my treatment of the native people and I again here there was a, a certain amount of confected misunderstanding I am a great um, champion of the grievances of the native people where I part company is in several areas. I do not accept that there has ever been, in the time that Canada has been an autonomous jurisdiction, uh, anything remotely approaching any sort of genocidal policy, cultural or otherwise. And right. Cultural genocide is nonsense, by the way. There's no such thing. But, but that's not the point. Even even that, such such if you can divine what it is intended to mean, was was never official policy. I, 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 that's no whitewash of what the policy was, but it wasn't genocide. Right. And and the uh, the twin sentiment with this has been the the um, romanticization of the native cultures in the manner of James Fenimore Cooper and Chateaubriand, contemporary writers like my friend Joseph Bowden and so forth. It's very good literature, but it's not history. Uh, the fact is 
it, it was a culture that was was uh, the native people, tremendously skilled though they were in certain areas, had a culture that was uh, literally thousands of years in arrears of Europe. It was a Stone Age culture. They hadn't invented the wheel. They did not. They they hadn't discovered metal. They had tools of bone rather than than metal. Uh, they, they didn't have a copper bowl, and or anything like it. And and they didn't have any knitted goods. They they uh, they used animal skins, and and they were essentially nomadic. There was very little construction that lasted a little bit out in the west coast and a bit in the Ohio Valley. That's all. Now they they did wonders of what they had, but this idea that the emissaries of the of the civilization of Michelangelo and Leonardo and so forth arrived in the, in the in a society that was culturally a peer of Europe is simply rubbish, and, and that's no disrespect to the native person. I'm, I believe in the equality of all peoples, but right. some cultures are more advanced than others. And why do you think that is a controversial point? Because when, when you lay it out like that, when you're simply talking about the advancement of technology and not mm-hmm. addressing you know, uh, colonization or, or race or anything like that, was that question so controversial because you're controversial, or was it controversial because the points that you were making, which really do sound sort of uh, you know, like bland historical facts when you lay them out, um, do you think that was the case? Uh, again, you're asking me a bit to to mind read, which I'm reluctant to do for the reason I said, but uh, I suppose a bit of both. But where I found the reference to the native peoples to be controversial was with the native peoples themselves. And and they have been these, some of the more vocal of them. And I emphasize again, I, they have no more vociferous advocate for a redress of their grievances than I am. I, I, I don't think they've been well treated, and I think we've got to do a much better job at trying to put things right. Uh, so I you don't misunderstand the angle I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this from. Mm-hmm. The, 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 I had not realized, frankly, until I saw some of the comments of Native people spokesmen, particularly in Winnipeg, which is effectively the capital of the, of the whole First Nations movement in this country. It's a relatively large percentage of the population of that city. And, um, and, and they have great influence in the local media, especially the CBC out there. And, and they, they attacked me in the most virulent terms as if I was, uh, if I, as if I was Julius Stryker or one of these propagandists from Nazi times, you know. And, and I had not recognized, so it was an eye-opener for me, the extent to which they developed this completely fraudulent blood libel on the European Canadian that that uh, you know that John A. Macdonald was a genocidist that the Europeans were setting out to exterminate the so-called Indians uh, and and uh, so naturally I encountered the full uh, hostility of that group but you know, frankly that sort of hostility is something the badge of honor while I am Determined, and as a as a member of this society, a unfailing and rather uh, stentorian advocate of, of doing doing a better job to, to you know to, to 
try and repair relations with Native people and make up for the bad things that have happened and treaty violations and so forth. Uh, I, I am honored to defend uh, European civilization in Canada as a non-genocidal, not fundamentally evilly intended culture. It was nothing of the kind. And I may add, it does not lie in the mouths of those who were the descendants of the cultures. Practically, total activity apart from apart from the barest necessities of survival was making war, which routinely included torturing women and children to death. It, is, it does not lie in the mouths of those people to make some of the claims that they have. Finally, uh, with, with with the entire book making making essentially the case for Canada, it was it was uh, as as you point out a, a, a very proud Canadian book. Well, it, as the British say, I was bowling for Canada. I assume that's a trick expression. <laughs> well, and standing today in 2015, where we're in incredibly uncertain 2016, times. 2016, I'm afraid. 2016, of course. Well, we're incredibly uncertain times. And uh, and in Canada is trying to find its place on the world stage. We've recently had summits, the you know the, the Paris Climate Conference. We've got uh, foreign policy decisions that are, are very imminent. Where do you think Canada stands on on this stage in relation to the other nations? Uh, I think I think it's uh, benignly viewed as a good country that doesn't do, generally speaking, doesn't do bad things. Isn't a trouble place. Uh, has a, a good alliance record when it's been tested, and and has, uh, with a historical view, uh, has, has never participated in an unjust war, and has never failed to be on the victorious side in the wars that has been in, and that has contributed uh, to them as a country that was not itself under threat. So, in acts of great generosity, uh, huge numbers of volunteers. Canadians went and served in both world wars and a substantial number in the Korean War, and, and Canada was not under any threat there um, in any of those wars directly. And um, I, I mean, I'm not suggesting that great many people reflect upon that now, but that is the background of the country, and so they, no, they don't think of Canada as they would of Russia or Germany or many other great countries where, where in vivid memories, some truly terrible things have been done by those countries. And yet I think it is seen as a country that's underachieving. I know Canadians cherish this view that we punch above our weight, but in my opinion, we punch below our weight. We're a G7 country, and we don't have the military force of a G7 country. And since we don't have that force, we have no influence in those alliances. If we if we had, for example, an aircraft carrier, and a you know, when I was a very young man, we had two aircraft carriers, and we had uh, barely a third of the population we have now. And if we had an aircraft carrier, so we could sort of project the flag. I don't mean to just to intimidate people flying the warplanes off them. I mean, you know, in, in great uh, uh, humanitarian disasters and things like that, they're wonderfully efficient vessels, and you can run you can run them as hospital ships effectively, and you know, bring people on board by helicopter and so on. And if we projected our, our our strength more and had uh, more than a handful of warplanes and three brigades, we could then pound the table very politely in the Canadian manner uh, <laughs> at, at NATO meetings, for example, and say, look, here, we have to do more to help these refugees, or we have to do more to deter the... 
Russians from seizing parts of Ukraine that have no Russian ethnic component to them at all. Uh, not that we can do it ourselves, but at least we could sort of put our money where our mouths were, if you'll, if you'll take that expression. And, 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 and so I think we can do more. Incidentally, uh, since they're not good economic times, so I've said several times in what I write in the National Post, the military spending is the best economic stimulative spending there is. A lot of it goes to high tech, uh, and, and, and most of the recruiting directly reduces unemployment, and, and it is the best form of adult education in all the advanced countries. As we look at the United States, but it's the same here, it's just the numbers are greater. All the officers are highly educated people. They may have come through a staff school to get there, but by the time they're in the mature part of their career, they're all PhDs and everything, and all the people who are enlisted men end up being very thoroughly qualified academically and professionally, and, and, and it, it, it is just an excellent form of adult education. And the Americans showed that with the GI Bill of Rights when they put 15 million people in a population of 135 million people through the university system for free after the war. And that was the last great enactment, posthumous in its execution, of Franklin D. Roosevelt. Well, Mr. Black, thank you so much for taking the time. Not a bit. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. Have a wonderful day. And to your listeners. Ladies and gentlemen, that was author and columnist Conrad Black, who uh, joined me from Toronto for a discussion about his book, uh, The History of Canada from the Vikings to the President, with the main title being Rise to Greatness. I was very grateful that he he would take the time for this interview, and I hope you uh, enjoyed the discussion. We're hoping to have a number of other authors on in the next couple of weeks as well to take a look at books, uh, both of Canadian content and otherwise. Uh, But next week we have uh, a very special guest. We actually have uh, someone who was a survivor of multiple concentration camps and has uh, been telling his story recently, and his story is so profound and his storytelling is so eloquent that he was actually referred to um, by the President of the United States, Barack Obama. So we've got that coming up next week. Uh, if you want to catch any of our past shows, you know, our literary series from, from over the Christmas holidays, uh, any of our past interviews, uh, please go to thebridgehead.ca or check us out on SoundCloud, uh, which is The Bridgehead again, or uh, go to our YouTube page because we basically we repost all of our interviews after we record them so you can find them again there. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us this week. We hope you have a great weekend, and we hope you'll join us again next Thursday.